Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. A few weeks ago, we've launched a study of this book. We're still in chapter 1, and we will be next week as well. But 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 13. As you turn there, remember Peter has given us the greeting, that's the first couple of verses, and he's gone into this thanksgiving. It's actually one long sentence in the Greek, and it goes all the way uh, past the section we're looking at today, all the way to verse 25. That's a run-on sentence. But we're going to look at verses 13 through 21 this morning of this thanksgiving. Therefore, Peter writes, and when you see a therefore in the scripture, you need to take note because it's the anchor, it's throwing an anchor back to what's already been given and pulling us into this. And the therefore is the, the salvation that we have. He talked much about that. And Peter says, get your minds ready for action by being fully sober and set your hope completely on the grace. This was seen back in verse 10, the prophets who predicted the grace that we would have that they will be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Like obedient children, do not comply with the evil urges you used to follow in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, become holy yourselves in all of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. Here Peter is quoting from Leviticus 19 implications are huge but often Peter will give an argument and then he will close it out with a quote from the Old Testament and that's what he does here and if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work live out the time of your temporary residence that's used of in the Old Testament of the Israelites when they're in exile and and when they were in Egypt he says your temporary residence here in Reverence. You know that from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, you were ransomed not by perishable things like silver or gold, but by precious blood like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, namely Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for your sake. Through him you now trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in the midst of a, a rainy morning downpour. Lord, uh, we're so thankful to come into your house to hear praises, to join in song, to hear the word being read. And our hearts are drawn to you. And we're reminded of the truths of your word Guide us today as we look at those, as we look at particularly 1 Peter 1. And may we, as your word promises, not come back void as we take these words and apply them to our life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Your notes should be there before you. It's on the last page of your bulletin or if you're watching online, there's electronic copy available. Well, I'm sure if you were like me this past week, I was shocked when I opened up the news app and saw that Queen Elizabeth II had passed away. Sadly, as I watched some of the documentaries and comments being made in news articles, 
one of the various, one key area in her life was often missed, which was vital, and that was her faith. The queen's faith was more than a product of polite difference to historical tradition. Throughout her reign, she articulated the importance of her faith and recommended it to her subjects. Listen to these words that she gave in 2000. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and example. Wow. It was clear for the queen that the teachings of scripture were vital in guiding her in her life. Her father read scripture every night to the family and he told her it's important as queen that you are in the word. And she understood that. She tried to implement that. And that's what we're gonna see in Peter because doctrine is so vital before we get to duty. I would argue without a proper understanding of theology, True duty is impossible. It's, it's also important that we don't confuse the two. Works result from an understanding of God's holiness and an acceptance of his grace and love, or they're worthless and of no eternal value. I mean, Ephesians 2 states, for by grace you were saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's not of works, lest you boast about what you did or gave. And Peter understood this. That's why he has spent the first part of this Thanksgiving dealing with our, our salvation, the glories of our salvation in the present, in the future, and even rooted in the past. And now that he's laid that out, he's going to give us four commandments in the latter part of this section. Three of those are here found in the, the first 13 through 21 verses. And so let's look at these. The first of these is found in verse 13. And unfortunately, I'm reading from the Net Bible, I don't think the rendering is very clear. There are two participles, and I know those of you who don't love English grammar, just stick with us, all right? There's two participles, and there's an imperative. There is a command. The only command, the, the, the participles tell us how the command is to be fulfilled. And so really, the, the only command here is to set your hope fully on the grace. So how should we render this verse? Probably better to render it that it set your hope fully on the grace by, here's the participles, by preparing your minds and being sober. So let's, let's look at the command, set your hope, which again, this English version isn't as clear as it should be. Set your hope completely on the grace. This hope ties us back to verse three. Go back to verse three, remember this? He said, blessed be the God and Father, by his great mercy he gave us new birth into a living, there it is, a hope. And grace we've already seen as we talked about. Hope has a focal point for Peter. Don't miss this. He's, he gives us the what. Notice what he says here in verse 13. Set your hope completely on what? The grace. What's the grace? It's the salvation. It's, it's the goal of our faith. And verse, we saw in verse 10 and verse 9, all that Peter had talked about, he says, this is what we're setting our hope on. Don't forget this. And notice the when is also given. We have the what, we have the when. That will be brought to you. And boy, don't miss the pronouns through here. Time and time again, it's highlighted. It will be brought to you when Jesus Christ 
is revealed. Remember, our readers are suffering for their faith. They don't fit the social norm. In a Roman Empire in the first century, to not declare the emperor as Lord, but to call someone else Lord is a serious problem. Not only that, the Jewish faith was tolerated in the Roman Empire, but not Christianity. And so the, the Jewish community made sure they, that the Roman officials knew they're not part of us. And so that created further problems for them as well. And Peter says, hold fast, because we know what the future holds. Christ is gonna be revealed. It's interesting, notice he says here in the text that it will be brought to you. You would expect a future tense there. It's actually present, which conveys, I would argue, a vivid expectation. In other words, this is as good as done. It's gonna transpire that Christ is coming and we're benefiting from this. Remember the old hymn, Jesus is coming again standing before him at last trial and trouble, all past crowns at his feet, we will cast, Jesus is coming again. And as Peter writes to these believers who are scattered around modern Turkey and are suffering for their faiths, he said, hey, be of good cheer. <laughs> Set your hope on that which you know is sure, that is Christ is going to come. One scholar writes, it's hope that allows Christians to undergo the kind of social condemnation they encounter with its looming threat of expulsion from their society or worse. It's hope that gives Christians the courage to accept God's grace in a hostile world. That's why this book is so relevant, I believe, for us as believers living in 2022. So he gives us the what and he gives us the when on setting our hope but how? How do we do that, Peter? And that's where those two participles come into play. The first is get your minds ready. It literally means get, gird up the loins. In the ancient world, if a guy's, you know, you're wearing a robe, it's the idea that you would tie it up so that you then could do some physical activity. A modern analogy is if a guy's getting into a fight, right? They take off their, their jacket. All right, let's go at it. Uh, the idea here is it, in, it's girding up your loin. It's the getting that mind, which isn't just the intellect. It's the spiritual. It's the mental. It's rolling up your sleeves of your mind. We're in a battle. Get your head in the game kind of an idea, right? Pay attention to what's happening. A successful spiritual life is never accomplished by waiting. I've met folks that say, well, you know, I'm I'm just waiting for the Lord to, to move in my life so I can get fired up for him. Really? <laughs> He's moved enough to tell you what you need to do. Get off your laurels and work, do. We're not to retreat or rest. We're to be active. Christian life is not passive. If you think that, you've lost the battle. We, we need to set our minds on these things. David Rock, the executive director of Neuro Leadership Institute, wrote a book, said, your brain at work. He says, distractions are everywhere. Listen to what this fellow says and research that he shows. And with the always on technology today, they take a heavy toll on productivity. One study found that office distractions eat an average of 2.1 hours a day. Wow, right? 
Another study published in October 2005 found that employees spend an average of 11 minutes on a project before being distracted. <laughs> Some of you employers are saying, I thought it was three minutes. And then interruption, it takes them 25 minutes to return to the original task if they do it at all. And further, he says, distractions are not just frustrating, they can be exhausting. By the time you get back to where you were, your ability to stay focused goes down even further as you have even less glucose available now. Change focuses 10 times an hour. One study found that some people in offices change 20 times an hour. And your productivity thinking time is only a fraction of what's possible Less energy equals less capability to understand, decide, recall, memorize, and inhibit. No wonder the scripture says, set your mind, renew it, focus, because there's a serious problem we face as human beings, don't we? It calls, again, for effort, for concentration. Paul understood this in his writings, Romans 12, a great verse, verse two. Do not be conformed to this present world, how? By, re, by the transformation of the renewing of your mind. It starts there. It starts in the mind so that you may test, Paul says, and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. If we let our minds wonder, it will wind up into restricted areas for sure. This is why Peter says, renew your mind. That's how we set our hope. How do we set it? on this grace that's gonna be revealed when Christ returns, he says here, set your minds, get ready for action, and then he says, be sober. Now, immediately we're thinking alcohol, but I would argue that's not just physical drunkenness, but not having your mind wander into other kinds of mental intoxication or addiction, which inhibits spiritual alertness or any laziness of mind which lulls the Christian into sin and carelessness. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelist, fulfill your ministry. To our readers who are struggling in the midst of persecution, not fitting in culturally, and, and keeping their focus on hope, Peter says, listen, first thing you need to do is, is you gotta shore up your mind and you've got to be sober. You've got to guard. We need spiritual AA. <laughs> Steps for spiritual sobriety. Let me give you a few if you're taking notes. First of all, I would argue, slow down. If I could meddle, and I will for a short moment, I think one of Satan's greatest tools to hinder mental soberness is through busyness. I know, it's a problem for me. Uh, this last week I was running to pick up one of my kids at the dentist office and, and I realized how impatient I was <laughs> with every car in me that was in front of me. You know, I mean, you don't stop at a roundabout. You know, and you know, I'm trying to get across town over to Zionsville to pick up my child so I can get him back to Carmel to school. And then I'm standing in line at coffee and wouldn't you know, the person behind the counter goes, are, are you the pastor at CBF? I'm like, oh, no. I said, yes, I am. Jesus loves you and so do I, All right? And you realize, because I'm sitting there and this lady, I say, get your app open, you're gonna order. You know you're ordering. I'm like, why is your app open? And I'm looking at my watch. And busyness is so easy to take over our minds, isn't it? So slow down. 
Here's another tip for spiritual sobriety. Simplify. Technology, while wonderful, can be one of the most effective distractions. Uh, and, and perhaps it means you only check emails twice a day. Uh, when you do devotions, turn off the phone and resist the urge for every ding that comes in or vibration. Oh, that's so-and-so probably texting me about today. Set it aside. Simplify. We need to, to stop the urge. Uh, you need to be aware of your internal mental process and catch the wrong impulses before they take hold. It's like the old saying says, timing is everything. Get ahead of the game mentally. That's why Paul says in Romans, we need to transform it by renewing the mind. It needs to be on the forefront. And we also need to manage what we focus about. That's why Peter's saying, set your mind on the grace that's ahead of us. The hope that's laced around it and packaged in a great bow when Christ returns. That should be our focal point that is what we need to look to. And so the first command he gives here is hope. He moves into the second command we see in verse 14 through 16. And it's interesting because I thought of 1 John 3 as I was reading this text because an edict for holiness leads us to the second command because 1 John 3 says, and everyone who has this hope Focused on Christ, what? Purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. And so we see the second command that he gives in, in this exhortation in light of our glorious salvation, and that is to walk in holiness. Notice he gives us several points about this here in the text. First, he gives us the manner in which we are to live holy lives. He says in verse 14, like obedient children. We all know what happens when they are disobedient. And he's referring to the obedient children. They're called not to be passive. It's not just lip service. And I love how he says, in the context of your heavenly father, this is, this is, this is what we wanna do. We'll get back to this in a minute because of what Christ has done for us. And he says, as obedient children, do not comply with the evil urges you used to follow. And get this next phrase, in your ignorance. There was a time when we didn't know these things, but now we do. Now we have the enlightenment that Christ has given through the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is we need to be in tune to these things. I remember a few years ago, and it's been a few, but I was driving 67. I thought it was a 65 zone. I know you're telling me it's too over, but that was good. Um, and um, Police pulls me over and says, do you know it's a 55 zone? I said, no, I didn't. She said, oh, that's too bad. Here's your ticket. <laughs> and you're like, thank you. And she said, and by the way, the next time you drive through here, you'll now know it's 55. <laughs> now I know. And Peter's saying, those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we know these things. So why, why would you, you don't want to go back to this. We're, we're no longer enslaved to sin. You're aware of the speed limit. And so the manner of living is through obedience. And I love the next verse because we have a model. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And Peter goes for the juggler. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, there's your standard, it's God. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not your pastor or your elder 
because we have shortcomings. It's not your Bible study teacher or your small group leader. It's the Lord. Isn't that awesome? God is seen as holy. And what does that mean? Well, it means he's separated from sin. He's devoted to seeking his, actually his own honor. In fact, many scholars would argue that holiness is the overarching characteristic of God. Of course, we think of Isaiah 6 where the angels that were around the throne are saying, holy, holy, holy. And Peter says, this is who you need to be like. I love that, those progressive insurance commercials you got Rick, a fictitious character who's appearing in those advertisements, who's a coach, that self-help coach trying to help these new homeowners not to be like their parents. Have you seen these? I love it. This cracks me up. Well, unlike the progressive commercials, we need to be like our dad, our holy father. Uh, and that's the idea that Peter's saying here. We need to be holy. God serves as the measuring stick at what is right. Our ethics are not determined by a consensus or what moral experts or specific interest groups believe. If anything, our present world with all its proliferation of ideas on ethical standards and even the unwillingness to have a reflective discussion reveals humans' inability to navigate. Correct? I mean, you see this. Without the Lord as our standard and his word, we are tossed about in a sea of relativity. In fact, our entire world's view begins, it must begin with God, not man. This is the grave danger of a democracy. You remove the Judeo-Christian worldview and ethics will disintegrate. There's no standard anymore. And Peter said, your standard, you who are receiving this letter, it's God. This is where we go to. This is our standard. We are to be holy, and I love this. Notice what he says. Who, don't miss this, called you. <laughs> Grace precedes demand. Isn't that wonderful? Our salvation is the starting block for becoming holy. God who initiated our salvation is the one who is setting the standard. We want to become like our God because I would argue we see his sacrifices, we see his patience, we see his kindness, his forgiveness, his faithfulness, and his honesty, and thus in turn, we, we run to him, and we wanna be like him, right? That's what he's saying here, holiness, one pastor writes, is not attained, at least not in lasting, life-changing way, merely through prohibitions, threats, fear, or shame-based appeals. You'll as a parent, you're not going to have your child grow in holiness by browbeating and by all of these rules and regulations. Holiness is attained by believing in, trusting in, banking on, resting in, savoring and cherishing God's promise of a superior happiness that comes only by falling in love with Jesus. That's true spirituality. And I would argue that's true Christianity. And the church throughout the ages has often missed this. It's, it's always, sometimes the scale can go one side to the next. But our holiness, our, our desire to be like God is driven out of a, a desire to be like him because we love him and we understand what he has done for us. If you don't get anything else out of that sermon today, that's what you need to walk away with. 
I don't do what I do because of rules and regulations. We do what we do because we love him dearly. And Peter said, this is the one who's called you. So consequently, he says, become holy. And he says it, and, and notice it says in all, verse 15, of your conduct. So we, we've seen the manner, we've seen the model, and now we see the extent. It's in everything. It affects all we do. It transforms every day, every moment, every thought, every action. And so there's, there's no cutting corners, public or private, Sundays or Mondays, in front of the family, in front of the computer, in the workplace, on the court, in your PJs, in your Sunday's best. It should transform all areas. That's the extent of living a holy life. He says, in all your conduct, and then again he quotes from the Old Testament, the basis for living our holy lives is rooted in, that. not only I would argue he called us, but it's rooted in scripture. This was commanded of what we are to do. The, law, the Lord longs for his people to reflect his moral character. We are called to imitate him. Because in so doing, we bring glory to him. That's what he longs to see. And so he says, because of your salvation, that which we rehearsed earlier in chapter one, he says, set your hope completely on the Lord. Devote yourselves to holiness. And he's gonna give us one more command. And that is found in the next verse, verse 17. And that is to live in reverence or you might have in your rendering fear. Let's back this up for a minute. First of all, he says in verse 17, and if you address the one as father, this one who called you, this one who gave you hope, this one who gave you salvation, this one who has laid out a plan for you, if, if you call him father, and you do, know that with that also comes not only love, but also discipline. You can't have one without the other. And he says that they're tied together. And he says, because you know that he judges impartially, in other words, no one is going to hoodwink the Lord, you can't throw down the favor card or say, well, I belong to a particular political party. None of that is going to work with the Lord as judge. No. And he says, because of this, you need to live in fear or reverence. It seems contrary, doesn't it? He so set our hope. Joy's mentioned it more than once earlier in chapter one, and now you say fear? Peter, I, I don't understand. What, what are you trying to say? Well, this kind of fear is rendered, perhaps a better way would be a profound reverential trust. It's, it, it's an awe of who God is. It, it's what we sometimes call a healthy fear. A healthy fear of a car accident causes you to drive safely and buckle up, right? A healthy fear of hereditary health condition causes you to be tested on a regular basis or perhaps take a prescribed medicine. A healthy fear of bees causes you not to hang around beehives. I don't know. But you have a healthy fear of certain things. And there needs to be a healthy fear of God. And you say, well, is that biblical? Yes. Time and time again, Scripture talks about we need to have a, a healthy fear of God. In fact, Proverbs says it's the beginning of, the beginning of wisdom is, is, is fearing God. It's where it starts. We're not to fear man. And remember, our, our readers, they're, they're struggling here. They're not fitting in in their society. And there's the fear that they won't be accepted or fear they could lose their job or, or, or whatever the fear is or be imprisoned. 
And Peter said, the only people you need to fear is God. That's who you need to fear. Because he's the one who ultimately judges. Porter, in his article on fear of the Lord, says, The fear of God may well include a recognition of the futility of human opposition to the divine, especially for those who are God's enemies. But for those who follow God, fear grows from the respect and honor of which God is worthy as God to receive. And, and it's highlighted here because Peter says, notice this, he says in verse 17, you're to live out your time as, knowing that you are temporary rever, uh, residents. This world doesn't hold anything. We long for that one when we're in the presence of our Lord. And, and that's the one we should fear because there's a day coming when we'll have to give an account. And he says, so you need to fear him. In fact, he gives us three reasons why we need to fear if we look at the text carefully, the first is our lives are brief, then we'll face the judge. I don't care if you live to be 96 like the queen, it's still brief in the grand scheme of world history. The Lord who judges impartiality, in other words, again, you're not going to get off. He is going to hold you responsible. And Peter's saying our life is short and you need to be ready. Secondly, we live our lives in deep gratitude and wonder what the Lord has done. I love this verse, verse 18. You know that from your empty way of life, you were ransomed, and that's a key term. It was used of releasing slaves, paying the price so they could have their freedom in the first century. And that's what he did for us because we were enslaved to sin. Right? You've been ransomed, not by perishable things, but by the precious blood that like an unblemished and spotless lamb. We've been ransomed. And, and, and how? The, the Lord didn't write a check. He didn't send a group of angels to get the job done. No, he sent his own very son who died for us. The blood of Christ, our conscience are cleared according to Hebrews 9 by the blood. The blood of Christ gives us bold access to God and worship and prayer. It progressively cleanses us from sin, 1 John 1. It, it allows us to be rescued out of a sinful way of life. Jerry Bridges writes, Jesus did not die just to give us peace and a purpose in life. He died to save us from the wrath of God. Oh, we don't, we don't hear that often. But the text is clear. We serve one who will judge. And he's impartial. And Bridges goes on to state, he died to ransom us from the penalty of sin, the punishment of everlasting destruction. Shut out from the presence of the Lord, he died that we, the just objects of God's wrath, should become, by his grace, heirs of God and co-heirs with him. So fear him. Revere him. Stand in awe. This old song, what a friend we have in Jesus, and it's true. But he's more than just the buddy over the coffee. He's the God of the universe who's allowed you to call him his child. And he sent his son, who we see here in the text, gave his blood like an unblemished and spotless lamb. That's loaded. I mean, it should bring up a ton of Old Testament imagery. Exodus 12, the, the spotless lamb that was the Passover lamb that took away the sins of the people. The lamb without blemish. Think of, of John the Baptist who said, behold, 
referring to Christ, the, the Lamb of God is in our midst. And, and this is the one. And so we see here, why do we fear? Because one, life is short. Two, because we walk in gratitude. And third, we can rest with certainty in a God who fulfills his promises. Notice what the text says. He foreknew us before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for your sake. Through him you now trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in him. We have certainty. The foreknowledge was God moving before time, which he has so seen fit that he was going to bring his son into the equation and then the long-awaited appearance of the Messiah, which we looked at last week, came to fruition. It's highlighted here. The redemption that took the councils of eternity, sent forth God's own son. He, he raised him, the text tells us, and he glorified him, giving us assurance that all of this is guaranteed. It all stems from the Lord, not us. And that's why I hope you saw the pronouns through here. It, 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 verse 13, he brought to you. He did this for you. Verse 20, he, he, for your sake. It, it, it's all stressed through here of what God has done. He is the one, then it says, at the very last verse, where we place our faith and our hope. It's not an afterthought. It's intentional. God is the source of our faith and our hope. Two days after 9-11, on September the 13th, George W. Bush called a national day of prayer. He stated these words, we mourn with those who've suffered great and disastrous loss. Then, notice what he says, we pray for healing and for the strength to serve and encourage one another in hope and faith. Now, I don't know if he was thinking of 1 Peter 1, verse 21, but he's exactly correct. Because where will you find faith? Where will you find hope? If the readers of 1 Peter were here, they would scream it from their mouth, out of their mouths. It's from the Lord. This is where we find it. And that's what Peter's highlighting here. Your faith, your hope are in God. So set your hope on him. Be holy. Fear God. And all of this is born out of God's promises and what he has done. First Peter 5, remain strong in your faith, a faith born out of grace and sustaining us to the end with the promise of salvation, a salvation that Christ will bring when it is revealed. And so as I was thinking through this text, you'll notice the application's a little different this time around in the notes because I thought, you know, we're to live our lives with that expectation. There's a day coming. Yay. You know, we can live in a little bit of fear. As I mentioned before, my grandmother used to say, you don't want to be doing that when the Lord returns, right? It's just right. But there's, there's so much we should be doing because we know the end. We know it's coming and we rejoice. And so we need to be Christ-focused. And so I used an alliteration or uh, not alliteration, but a I don't know, acronym or whatever, uh, with Christ's name. So hopefully that'll help you remember. The first of these is conversations. Colossians 4, let your speech always be with gracious words seasoned with salt. I mean, think about this. If you were told 
that you only have six days to live, would that change your conversations? Would it change what you talk about? And, and Peter's saying, we're living in expectation of Christ's coming. And so that is, should affect our conversations, our handling of time. Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. We're striving first for the kingdom. I meet believers, they're, they're far, they're kind of like those on, they're, they're rearranging the China on the Titanic. The ship's going down. Forget the China. The Wedgwood will take care of itself. The handling of time, the days are short. Seek first the kingdom. Relationships, 1 Thessalonians 3, abound in love. This is what we're gonna see at the, this the last command here of the Thanksgiving we'll get to next week. But uh, if they know Christ is, your sa- is their savior, you're gonna spend all eternity with him. So you probably should learn to get along now, right? Income, finances, treasures with eternal dividends. Luke 12 talks about this. It's, it's, it's where no inflation's gonna get it. It's perfect. The S I have down is service. Ephesians 6, while it was given to slaves, it could be applied to all of us. Obey with enthusiasm as though serving the Lord. I had a church historian, uh, Professor John Hanna, who often said, we are losing the opportunity to give our lives away. (laughs) Isn't that great? We are losing the opportunity to give our lives away. Service. And then finally, our thought life. 2 Corinthians 10, we are to take every thought captive to make it obey God. If anything from 1 Peter you should get, we're in a spiritual battle and it has to begin with the mind. If it doesn't, you've lost already. It's like starting a race and your shoes aren't tied. I mean, you're toast. It's not gonna happen. There's a quote at the bottom of your notes from the Puritan Richard Baxter. Bend your soul to study eternity. Busy yourself about the life to come. Attune yourself to such contemplations and let not those thoughts be seldom and cursory, but bathe yourself in heaven's delights. That's what Peter's saying. Don't get distracted by this world. Zone in, set your hope on him, fear him. And in so doing, as you revere him, as you set your hope on him, then you can relish and love him and obey him. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful for your word. Thank you for the love that you've lavished on us. Lord, we want to be obedient children. In so doing, we want to cling to this hope that we have. And when Peter's laid it very clear what we need to be doing, we need to be walking in holiness and we need to fear you. Lord, give us the strength to do it. Lord, thank you that there's a day coming when our salvation, the grace, is going to be revealed in the appearance of your son. And Lord, we pray that that would be today. Come, Lord Jesus. Until then, thank you for the indwelling of the spirit who guides. Thank you for the body of Christ that comes alongside. And thank you for the opportunity to be called your children. It's in the name of our savior, that spotless lamb, Jesus, we pray.